0: Thank you, Richard, for filling in for Chris while he's away. Thanks to all the worship team. They're here bright and early on a Sunday morning. I don't know if you realize that. They wander in somewhere around 7, 7.30 to practice. And we're certainly thankful for their, for their commitment to that ministry. Good morning to you. You're going to need two passages of Scripture today. Uh, First of all, out of the Old Testament, you're going to need 1 Samuel chapter 10. And secondly, out of the New Testament, you'll need to find Romans chapter 8. And we're going to begin in Romans 8, then go back to 1 Samuel 10, and then back again to Romans 8. I trust that wasn't too difficult. We're going to begin in Romans 8. Let me repeat it. And then we're going to go way back in time to First Samuel chapter 10. And then later this morning in due course, we will return yet again and finish up in Romans chapter 8. Uh, if you've been following the headlines, undoubtedly you have. Uh, we have witnessed some pretty horrific things of late. Um, the, the bombing in Boston wasn't that long ago. And we have this uh, ordeal in Cleveland, Ohio, this kidnapping situation. And we have this man named uh, Gosnell, isn't it? The Gosnell, I don't know if I pronounced it right. The Gosnell trial in, in Philadelphia. Uh, these and, and other stories, quite, quite horrific. When these sorts of things happen, they lead invariably to discussions concerning that dirty little word, Sin. People, people are open to talking about sin, uh, the existence of sin, the essence of sin. Sadly, invariably, most people uh, revert to their default position. Uh, some people default to the disease model, right? We explain these sorts of things on the basis of messed up DNA. There are biological explanations which account for this kind of thing. Others default to the trauma model. Something bad must have happened in their past. They must have suffered some sort of ordeal themselves, which has twisted something, something has snapped, and that accounts for this kind of behavior, this kind of conduct. Others will default to the nurture model. Their social environment is to blame. Uh, Something was lacking from their upbringing, Or maybe they had too much of something in their upbringing. And that explains why they have behaved the way they have behaved. Uh, God's holy word gives us a very different model. Do you know what it's called? The flesh. That is the model that the Bible gives us. The flesh. Ricky's going to help me out at the outset here. We're going to pull up a few slides uh, on the the screen. And uh, when we speak of this word... Flesh, Uh, it is tricky. I'll get there in just a moment. Don't read ahead. Uh, Flesh, it's a tricky word because in the Bible, at times, it's used in reference to meat, beef, chicken, pork, flesh. At times in the Bible, it is used in reference to the body. You have a body, I have a body. You have flesh, I have flesh. At times in the Bible, it is used in reference to human nature, body and soul. The outer nature of the body, the inner nature of the soul, the flesh. And at times in the Bible, and Paul uses the word in this sense quite often, for example, in his epistle to the Romans, uh, the flesh refers to corrupt human nature, body and soul. What do we mean by corrupt human nature? We mean simply this, that when God created Adam and Eve centuries ago in the Garden of Eden, he created them in his image. As a result of their rebellion, they lost that image. And Adam and Eve were plunged into a condition estranged from, alienated from, separated from God. And their condition became sinful. A condition known as the flesh. And the ruling principle in their life was no longer love for God. The ruling and reigning principle in their lives, and consequently in our lives, in our hearts, is love of self. That's what we mean when we use the word flesh, corrupt human nature, corrupt body and soul. That Yes, we were created, the original man and woman, in the image of God. That image was lost by virtue of the rebellion, and love for God was replaced, substituted with love for self. And this is, has been the condition of Adam and Eve's posterity right down to the present, you and me included. That the ruling and reigning principle in our heart is love of self. Now, you must understand this next sentence it's crucial. This principle, that is love of self, that's what makes us tick. It's why we do what we do, why we function the way we function. It's self-love. It manifests itself in many ways. Many, many, many different ways the Bible testifies to that. And it manifests itself to varying degrees. And so we see it manifested in these newspaper headlines in Boston, Cleveland, Philadelphia. It's not manifested in my life like that. But friend, please understand that the principle is precisely the same. That behind every manifestation, although it manifests itself in many ways, and it manifests itself to varying degrees at the root, at the root of the flesh, that bottom sentence, there is what? Hostility to God. Okay, Ricky, you can pull up the next slide. And now here's where Romans 8 comes into view. You found Romans 8, right? I told you that's where we were going to begin and follow along just as I read just a couple of verses, 7 and 8. Paul says, For the mind, So the intentions, the goals, the aspirations, that is the principle of our hearts. The mind that is set on the flesh. There it is. That reigning and ruling principle, which is love of self. The mind which is set on the flesh, what does Paul say, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul states it emphatically. He impresses these three realities upon us. The first is this, our flesh, our corrupt human nature, that is that ruling and reigning principle, which is love of self, it makes us by nature hostile to God. And because we are hostile to God, we can't obey God. And because we can't obey God, we can't? Please God. Now, I need to make two qualifying points here because there are some here who will object. I used to object to this. The first qualifying point is this. Some will balk. Some will object. Hang on a second. Hostile to God. I can't obey God. I can't please God. You rhymed off three horrific incidents there from the the newspaper headlines. I'm not like that. I've never lived like that, and I would never do those kind of things. As a matter of fact, I'll say it softly and I'll whisper it, but I believe it wholeheartedly. I'm actually a pretty good guy. I'm actually a pretty good gal. I'm actually a a pretty good person. What do you mean that I'm hostile to God? What do you mean that I can't obey God? What does Paul mean when he says, I can't, you can't, in the flesh, please God? I've used this illustration here many, many times. And so for those of you who have been here for any length of time, that is a long period of time, I beg your forgiveness because here we go again. But this is for those of you who perhaps are newer. The the, the illustration I'm speaking of, and some of you are thinking, oh boy, here it comes, is the lion in the cage. Ike shaking his head. He remembers that one. Yes, Stephen, I've heard it 17 times. I could get up there myself and rhyme it off. No thanks, Ike. We have this lion in a cage. Huge, horrific creature. And he's hungry. Uh, He hasn't eaten anything for three or four days. And some man boldly opens up the door to the cage, throws in a big basket full of vegetables. Are you with me? The question is this. Can the lion eat the vegetables? Yes. There is nothing stopping. There is nothing physically preventing the lion from walking on all four over to that basket of vegetables and eating and devouring that basket of vegetables. He can do it. question is this, will he do it? No. Why? Because by nature he is a carnivore. He will starve before he will eat the vegetables. Friend, can you please God? Can you obey God? Well, yes. There is nothing outside of you physically preventing you from obeying God, pleasing God. But you won't obey Him or please Him. Why? Because by nature we are flesh. By nature we are hostile to God. And even, even when we do those things and perform those things which appear to be in accordance with God's law, they appear to be in accordance with God's will. Understand this. We do not do those things from the only principle which matters in God's sight, which is love for him. Even at the root of those things which appear good in our eyes, even at the root of those good deeds which we think we perform, lies the flesh, the reigning and ruling principle of our hearts, which is love of self. Did you get that? Second qualifying remark is this. Friend, the only thing that keeps you, this one you're going to have, please be patient. Let this one sink in and mull it over. The only thing that keeps you and the only thing that keeps me out of the headlines is the restraining grace of God. Amen. Do you understand that? Well, I would, I'm not like Heaven help that guy. Wow, I'm not like that. Friend, the only reason I'm not like that is God's restraining grace. The things we see in our society that appear to be good, they have an appearance of goodness. They are not a testimony to man's goodness. They are a testimony to God's common grace. They are a testimony to God's restraining grace. You go back pre-flood. And God looked out upon humanity and what did he behold? That every imagination of man's heart is only evil continually. And in the flood, what did he demonstrate? He demonstrated precisely what we all deserve. That if we were given free reign to pursue the inner impulses of our hearts, we are capable of the most depraved and horrific thing. And it is only by the sovereign common, restraining grace of God that we are not as bad as we could be. The potential for evil which resides within us is restrained for one reason, one reason alone. It is God's common grace. He does that for the world's sake. He does it for the world's sake. If he didn't restrain evil, we would devour one another. Just look back on human history. What is Auschwitz? What's going on there? Look at the Boston bombing. What's going on there? And you look back on all these horrific scenes in human history, and there we catch glimpses of what happens when God's restraining grace is removed. We would devour one another. And he restrains the flesh. Why? For the church's sake. Because if he did not restrain the flesh, the seed of the woman would be consumed. But because he is committed to his promise, he is committed to his covenant faithful, faithfulness, and he is committed to redeem a people unto himself. And he has graciously and compassionately by the Holy Spirit, he has bestowed his common grace upon humanity, and he restrains, he holds back the flesh. Friend, not to frighten you, but to remove the blinders. You see, the day, the day is coming, and the Bible testifies to this. The day is coming when God will remove the restrainer. He will remove fully, completely, and finally that which restrains the flesh. And do you know what that condition is called? That's hell. That's hell. God doesn't literally throw people into a place called hell, kicking and screaming against their will. Hell is simply the full, final, complete removal of the common grace of God and God turning man over to the flesh, the ruling and reigning principle within, which is love of, love of self. That's our condition. Our default position is not the trauma model, the disease model, or the nurture model. Our our default position is the biblical model, and it is called the flesh. What does that have to do with Saul in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10? In Saul, we have a living example of a man who lives according to the flesh. And we see in Saul, in chapter 9, the first couple of verses, uh, three characteristics of this man. Uh, Firstly, the author tells us something of Saul's society. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. And we know out of the book of Judges that Benjamin is a rebellious tribe, Uh, rebellious toward God, rebellious toward fellow man. We learn, secondly, something of Saul's family. His father, Kish, is a man of wealth. Nothing wrong with that per se, The author of the book is making a clear contrast between Saul's father, Kish, and Samuel's father, Elkanah. The one thing we learn of Samuel's father, Elkanah, is that he is a man who goes to Shiloh annually to worship God. The one thing we are told of Saul's father, Kish, is that he is a man of wealth. The implication is what? That his wealth is his idol. And it becomes evident in what? In chapter 9, as the narrative unfolds, that Samuel... Has never heard, uh, Saul rather, has never heard of Samuel. Saul has no knowledge of Samuel. He has no knowledge of God because his own father, flesh and blood, has never shared it with him. And Saul, we know something of his society, we know something of his family, and we know something of his appearance. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He is handsome externally. externally he is uh, he's a sight to behold. Impressive. But internally, he is... Godless. He is a man who walks according to the flesh. He is a man whose mind is set upon the flesh. This becomes evident throughout the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul's death isn't recorded until chapter 31, right at the end of the book. We're only going to go as far as chapter 15 in our study of his life. But it is made evident throughout his career that he is a man who walks according to the flesh. He is a man whose mind is set upon the flesh. And we see it. Ricky, you can pull up the next couple slides now. We see it a number of ways. We see it, number one, in the fact that he neglects the glory of God. Why? Because he's seeking his own glory. That's Saul. We see it, secondly, in that he follows the impulse of his desires, the corruptions of his heart, refusing to submit to God's word. Next slide, Ricky. We see it, thirdly, in that he refuses to rest on God's providence. Why? Because his joy is fixated upon things on earth, earthly things. Four, he plunges into temptation without fear or feeling. Just runs headlong into temptation. And fifthly, he continues in sin without humbling himself before God. That's it for the slides. We will come back to them later this morning, but you're done, Ricky. Many thanks. That's Saul. And that is a man, again, let me repeat it in the language of Romans chapter 8, a man who walks according to the flesh, a man whose mind is set upon the things of the flesh, Friend, as I went through that list, if any of those things reign in you right now, I guarantee it and I declare it, you have to hear it regardless of your profession. That means you are still a man, you are still a woman who walks according to the flesh. You are still a man and still a woman whose mind is set upon the flesh. And your only hope is to turn unto God in true heartfelt repentance. That's Saul. We come now to chapter 10. We're introduced to the man in chapter 9. We see how God in his sovereign control brings Saul to Samuel. Now we come into chapter 10. And what's going to happen in chapter 10 is that God is going to confirm his selection of Saul. He's going to confirm it firstly privately to Saul in the first 16 verses. And then he's going to confirm it publicly to Israel. But what's the point of this? What's going on here? What is it that God is conveying through this chapter? It is simply as follows. Despite all that God does for Saul, and we're going to see this in chapter 10, despite all that God does for Saul, despite all of the privileges which God bestows upon Saul, Saul remains a man whose mind is set on the flesh. We need to hear that. We need to hear, we must learn, we must reckon with with this reality that the greatest privileges cannot change the flesh. You can dress yourself up in the finest clothing. We can educate ourselves to the max. We can occupy what our society perceives to be a prominent, respected position. We can collect wealth. We can adopt a religion. We can live a nice, clean, upright life. We can deck ourselves out in all sorts of things which our society and culture values and esteems. And yet at the end of the day, guess what? The flesh remains the flesh. You can dress the flesh up, but the flesh is still the flesh. That's what we learn in the 10th chapter. As, Paul, as, as God now confirms through Samuel his selection of Saul... Again, he does so privately, the first 16 verses, to Saul. And then he does so secondly, uh, publicly, verse 17 through verse 27, to Israel. So follow along as I read this chapter now for us. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, that's Saul's head, and kissed him and said, "'Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel?' And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of, a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings, And to sacrifice peace offering, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, Where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his So the first 16 verses, privately, God confirms to Saul that he has chosen him to be king. Verses 17 through 27, God confirms publicly to Israel that he has chosen Saul to be king. In the midst of these two confirmations, privately, publicly, God bestows 10 incomparable privileges upon Saul. And here we have a clear demonstration again, let me repeat it, that you can dress up a man who walks according to the flesh, a man whose mind is set on the flesh, but those external changes cannot and will not ever change the man. Ten privileges, Let me rhyme them off for you quickly. I'll comment on one or two a little more than the others. Privilege number one, a blessed position. We return to the first verse. And Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. Big deal. What does that matter? Oh, it matters. To this point in the nation's history, anointing with oil had been very common when it comes to the priesthood. They would anoint priests. When the priests embarked on their ministry, they would anoint them with oil. But this is the first time a man is ever anointed with oil, thereby setting him apart as a prince over God's heritage. What a privilege that God would testify to his selection of Saul By involving him in this public display of his choice of him, his setting of him apart by anointing him with oil. That's privilege number one. Privilege number two, a godly counselor. What does Samuel do after he anoints Saul's head with oil? He kissed him. Why? What does the kiss symbolize? What does the kiss convey? As Samuel is declaring to Saul, in no uncertain terms, I I identify with you. I am pledging myself to you. From this day forward, one of my chief responsibilities, chief roles, and chief ministries will be to serve you. What a privilege. That this young man who has now been anointed king, selected by God himself, would have this companion, this colleague, this eminent prophet and judge of the Lord. Privilege number three, a tremendous promise. We pick it up in verse one. Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince, ruler over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. What a great promise. God is telling Saul, you don't need to worry, Saul. You will be an instrument in my hand that I have heard my people's cry. And just as I did in the days of Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and Barak and Deborah and in the days of Samuel, I will do now in your days. I'm going to use you to accomplish and bring about and effect the salvation of my people from their enemies. What a tremendous promise. Fourth privilege is this, a miraculous sign. Look at the last thing said in verse 1. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And he proceeds to give him three signs. Notice the attention given to detail. Because the signs are intended to convey in unmistakable fashion that it is indeed God himself bringing about these signs. And so Saul is going to leave. And first of all, he's going to meet two men. And these men will have a very distinct message for him, informing him that the donkeys, his father's donkeys, have been found. Well, that's pretty good. That isn't enough, Saul. Here's a second sign. Then you're going to meet three men. And they're going to have some wine. They're going to have some loaves. And they're going to give you loaves to eat. And you shall receive them from their hands. Well, that's pretty good. That's pretty impressive. Is that enough for you, Saul? Here's a third sign. You're going to return home to Gibeah, the high place, and you're going to meet a prophet, a a school, a group of the prophets, and the Spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon you. And you're actually going to enter into that prophetic frenzy, and you yourself are going to prophesy. Here are the signs. And these signs conveying unmistakably God's hand in them and confirming to Saul in very tangible, visible ways that God has indeed appointed him to be king. What a privilege. Before I move on to the fifth, let me insert a thought here because we can't get away from the sovereignty of God, can we? Um, We we just have to consider this. Uh, We saw it in chapter 9 with the donkeys. Who led those donkeys astray? That was God. We see it here with these three signs. Who's, who's orchestrating all of this? It's God. We're going to see it in the second half of the chapter when they start drawing lots out of a hat, however they did it. Who's controlling all of that? It's God. Jonathan Edwards declared years ago this doctrine, he's referring to the sovereignty of God, has often appeared exceedingly pleasant, exceedingly bright, and exceedingly sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. We sang it earlier out of Psalm 104, a tremendous verse, verse 32. It was in one of our songs this morning. God looks on the earth, do you remember this? And it trembles. Do you remember singing that? Out of Psalm 104. God looks on the earth and it trembles. Meaning what? A glance from God causes earthquakes. That's what the Bible is saying. A glance, but a glance from God causes earthquakes. God touches the mountains and they smoke. Meaning what? A touch from God produces volcanic eruptions. And so a mere glance causes earthquakes. A mere touch causes volcanic eruptions. If such slight impulses from God Cause such devastation, then, my friend, what is the effect of the full manifestation of his power? He is power. We err when we speak of God, and I've done it myself, when we say God is powerful. That's actually wrong. That is to ascribe an attribute to God as if we would say of a king, he is powerful. It's an attribute. Or she is powerful, God is powerful. No, it's incorrect. It's actually quite unbiblical. God is power. Because you see, when you say something is powerful, it could be a derivative power. The devil is powerful, but it's a derivative power derived from God. Our leaders are powerful, but it's a power derived from God. All power other than God's power is derived, and it is ministerial insofar as it serves God's power. He is power itself. And extremely important for us to grasp and understand that God's power and will are the same thing. His power and will are the same thing. In other words, God's willing of a thing is His doing of a thing. He is absolutely sovereign. We sing in a hymn these beloved words, praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how all thy longings have been granted in what he ordaineth? This doctrine has often appeared exceedingly pleasant, exceedingly bright, and exceedingly sweet. Absolute sovereignty over donkeys, over lots, over men, over loaves, over prophets. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. The fifth tremendous privilege is this, a different heart. Brings us into verse 9. When he turned his back to leave... And so he's been anointed, he's been kissed, he's received the promise, and he's received word of these three signs that he's going to encounter. He now turns his back to go, to leave. What happened? God gave him another heart. Aha, Saul is born again. No, Saul is not born again. This is common grace. You see, Saul is incapable of tying his own shoes apart from the Spirit of God. He's completely incapable of exercising any role of function as king over the nation of Israel. And here we have God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, pledging to help Saul, to sustain Saul, to enable and to equip Saul. And he gives him another heart, a different heart. That is common grace. That is restraining grace. That is the Spirit of God working through Saul in spite of who Saul is in the flesh. You see, Saul does not receive the Holy Spirit from God as father. Hear this, please. Let me repeat that. Saul does not receive the Holy Spirit from God as father. He receives the Holy Spirit from God as creator. The Spirit is given to him insofar as God has a purpose and plan to accomplish through him a plan, a calling that Saul is unable, incapable of fulfilling in his own strength. And so God equips and enables Saul to perform his role as king. The sixth privilege is this, a memorable experience. Brings us into verses 10 through 13. The first two signs have come to pass. He received word from those men that the donkeys had been found. He met those other men, and he received those loaves, and they had a meal, evidently. And Now the third sign is about to come, pass, come to pass. He's returned home to Gibeah, his town, where there's a high mountain. And what happens? He encounters this school of prophets... And look at what we read in the 10th verse. The Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Well, isn't that a born-again man? Oh, friends, Balaam prophesied. He was unregenerate. What do you think Judas did by the power of the Holy Spirit being one of the 12? He was unregenerate. Even Caiaphas in the New Testament prophesied. He was unregenerate. It's not a born-again man. This is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. As the Spirit comes upon him, rushes upon him, and Saul simply becomes, willing or unwilling, an instrument in the hands of the Spirit, whereby he prophesies in accordance with the will of God. And he enters into that prophetic frenzy. The people marvel. Look at what we read at the end of verse 11. What has come over the son of Kish? Whoa! We have a list, and we keep this list pretty up to date, of people we think God might call someday as a prophet. People who are up to the task, people who kind of fit the mold. Yeah, there's Saul right at the bottom of the list. What has come over Saul? That even Saul is now found among the school of the prophets. And yet one man speaking wisdom, look at what he says in the 12th verse, and a man of the place answered, and who is their father? In other words, what? Don't marvel that Saul is numbered among the prophets. Marvel at who is the father of the prophets and who is causing this. Who is exercising and manifesting his power by bringing Saul and including him now in the school of the prophets and overrunning Saul, whereby Saul now uncontrollably is prophesying. Marvel at God, who is the father of the prophets. What a memorable experience. We have these six privileges. And then all of a sudden we have an interlude in verses 14 through 16. Just a pause in the action, so to speak. He's home. His uncle comes to him. Where did you go? Saul tells him to seek the donkeys. When we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle, very inquisitive. Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. That's it. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Oh, what modesty and humility. No. Saul is unimpressed by the privileges. He doesn't get it. He's a man who walks according to the flesh. Look at what this man has experienced. The man of God, the prophet of the living God himself, Samuel, anointing him with oil and kissing him. And then from the prophet of the Lord, hearing God's promise, I'm going to make you king, and I'm going to use you to save my people from their enemies and their oppressors. And then through the prophet himself, this promise of these three signs, these three signs being fulfilled in the same day, the last being the greatest of all, where Saul is just kind of picked up and and he's lifted along in that prophetic frenzy. And then his uncle comes to him. What's happened to you? Lost some donkeys, but I found them. No mention of the kingdom. He's a man who walks according to the flesh. But the privileges don't stop there. We now transition from the private to the public. And we have a seventh privilege in verses 17 through 19. It is a solemn reminder. Because now God is going to confirm his selection of Saul publicly. So what does Samuel do? Verse 17. He calls the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Mizpah. Hmm. Mizpah. That place in West Texas? No, no. Mizpah. I've heard that somewhere before. I, my geography is brutal once I get beyond Weatherford. So there might be a Mizpah in West Texas for all I know. But the reference is to chapter 7. What happened at Mizpah? The Israelites were under the boot of the Philistines. And the Philistines had subjugated them, the Philistines controlled them. And under Samuel's direction, the tribes gather at Mizpah, where they deliver a sounding defeat to the Philistines. In celebration of that great victory, that deliverance of God, where it was evident that God had intervened to save them and defeat their enemies, what did the Israelites do? What did Samuel do? They put up a big stone, and they called that stone Ebenezer. And what does Ebenezer mean? The Lord is our Helper. It's beautiful. They had experienced such a tremendous deliverance. God had manifested his wondrous power among them by defeating their enemies. And they had kind of reasoned to themselves, look, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want to forget this. God and God alone is our helper. So let's, let's erect a, a monument here. And on the Sabbath afternoons, we'll bring our little ones out here for a picnic and we'll point them at that stone and we'll say, we remember when. We remember what God did for us, hearkening all the way back to the Exodus and what God has done for us. And we will remember that God is our helper. Oh, friend, the irony is palpable. Now here they stand before this monument at Mizpah. And what does Samuel have to say to them? Or rather, what does the Lord have to say to them through Samuel? Verse 18, he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God. You have rejected your God. And you you can just sort of picture them glancing one eye at Samuel, one eye at Ebenezer, that rock. One eye at Samuel, one eye at Ebenezer. Oh, friend, this is a solemn reminder. It is a solemn warning to the nation of Israel that although God is now giving them a king... They dare not forget who is their king. And it is a solemn reminder directed to Saul himself that he will be a king by divine appointment alone. And he must remember, he must never forget that God alone is Israel's helper. He gives them an eighth, tremendous privilege, a public confirmation in verses 20 through 24 And how does he do it? Through lots. They draw a lot, it falls to the tribe of Benjamin. They draw a second lot, it falls to the Matrites, the clan of the Matrites. They draw a third lot, and it falls to Saul. They have their man. What a privilege. God had conveyed it privately to Saul. Now he is confirming it publicly, a wonderful public confirmation of his selection of Saul. They look around, where is he and where is he to be found? He's hiding among the baggage. Oh, what a humble young man. All that is to misread the narrative, my friends. Here is the fear of man usurping the fear of God. Here is a man who has ignored everything that has come before and now is overwhelmed by the moment and decides to hide himself among the baggage. There's a ninth privilege, a written admonition, verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. Undoubtedly he got this out of what Moses wrote years earlier in Deut- Deuteronomy 17. He wrote them in the book, in a book, and laid it up before the Lord. You go back and you read that parallel passage in Deuteronomy 17 and you will discover that what we have here are rules and regulations given to the king governing, controlling his behavior. Rules and regulations designed to remind the king who has set him in that position over the nation. And of particular interest was this requirement that the king himself had to do what? He had to make his own personal copy of the law. He didn't make a personal copy of the law so that he could put it behind glass on the wall and shine a spotlight on it. He was to make a personal copy of the law that he might read it daily, that he might grow to fear the Lord. And here is a tremendous written admonition that it is impressed upon the nation. It is impressed upon Saul. Here is your first duty, Saul, before anything else. The law, you make a copy. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how heavy the thing is. You make a copy of that law. And Saul, you are to immerse yourself in it. You are to read it. And that reading is to have an end in view that you might grow to fear the Lord. What a privilege that he has before him, this written admonition and reminder of exactly what God requires of him. And then lastly, tenthly, there's a great encouragement. Here again we see God's sovereignty. Verse 26, Saul also, the people, they disperse. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. Look at what we read next. And with him went men of valor. Wasn't that nice? No, look at the last phrase. Whose hearts God had touched. Nobody would have gone with them if God hadn't touched those hearts. God touches the hearts of these men of valor. Here's Saul's first cabinet, if you like. And they go with him. They accompany him to support him. What a privilege. What a great encouragement that must have been to Saul. Now look again. Go back to verse 24. All of this has transpired now. Samuel says to all the people, Do you see him? There he is just standing right there. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Friend, the lesson is this. You take the best that humanity has to offer us today. The smartest, the brightest, the nicest looking, the most educated, the most successful, the most accomplished, the most powerful, the most general, generous, the most thoughtful. And do you know what you have? You have dressed up flesh. That is all. Despite all of these external privileges, Saul remains the man he always was. He remains a man who walks according to the flesh. He remains a man whose mind is set upon the flesh. Respectability, advanced education, Financial generosity, prominent position, and religious commitment. None of these things can change what we are. Now, and you have probably guessed it, we are going to go back where? Romans chapter 8. And look at what Paul unpacks here in tight, precise language. Beautiful in its simplicity. Profound in its depth. And look at what he says, a wonderful word of encouragement, beginning in the third verse of Romans 8. For God has done what the law. And so God has given his law. And God requires of you, he requires of me, perfect obedience and allegiance. He requires of us that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the problem? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And so we know what God requires of us. We know God requires to love him supremely and exclusively. He requires us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He requires us to obey him out of that love. That's his requirement. We can't do it. Why? Because we are flesh. The ruling and reigning principle in our hearts is what? Love of self. We can't do it. Praise God. God has done something. What? Continuing on the verse. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Yes, born and lived under the consequences of the fall, thirst and hunger and weariness, etc., etc. But one who was born perfect in terms of His nature... Apart from the flesh, no corruption in his heart. The ruling and reigning principle in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ was not love of self, it was supreme love of God. I have come down out of heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of He who sent me. And so here we are in our helpless and hopeless condition. We know what the law requires of us. We know that we're incapable of doing it because we're weakened by the flesh. But God, praise God, He has done what we could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that is as an offering for sin. So not only has God, not only has Christ fulfilled and done what we could not do by obeying his, his father perfectly and loving him with his, all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he has also come in order to bear the penalty that we deserve for having failed God and for having disobeyed him, for having rebelled against him. So God has condemned sin in the flesh. Now look what we read in verse four. It's beautiful in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so it's all of the Lord Jesus. We know what we are in the flesh. We know what God requires of us. And we know for certain, our we feel it, our inability, To give unto God what he demands of us and the fact that we fail miserably. But here we penetrate to the heart of the gospel and the mercy of God. That he has done what we could not do by sending his son, yes, in our humanity to fulfill the law and in our humanity to pay the penalty for our failure for obeying the law. In order that what? that righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Paul doesn't stop there. Some of us probably wish he would, but he doesn't stop there. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 4. His point is simply this. Friend, if you get it, Paul is basically saying this. If you get what I've just said, if you get the heart of the gospel, here's its effect, here's its fruit. Who walk not according to the flesh. What according to the Spirit. I think we can sum up what he is saying as follows. Friend, if grace doesn't change you, it ain't grace. If grace does not change you, it is not grace. If the gospel does not transform you, it is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If faith in the Lord Jesus, the one who has been condemned for us, the one who fulfilled the law for us, does not compel us to walk according to the Spirit, it is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I promised you we would return to the PowerPoint. Ricky, you can pull it up now. and Let me give you some marks of what it means to walk according to the Spirit. What does this look like to set our minds Upon the Spirit. Simply put, firstly, we take God as our happiness. He becomes our joy. Two, we take God's Son as our Savior. He's our hope. Our hope, our faith is in Him alone for salvation. We take God's Spirit as our guide. The Spirit of God becomes the ruling and reigning principle within. Number four, Ricky, we take God's word as our rule. God has revealed himself. He has revealed his will for us. His word becomes our desire. We take God's holiness as our desire, our longing. Number six, we take God's promises as our hope. And number seven, the last. We echo the words of another Saul, who lived a thousand years after this Saul, who was also of the tribe of Benjamin, whose name God changed to Paul. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. That is the essence of what it means to walk according to the Spirit. It is to perceive and understand and apply the gospel. It is simply to understand that all that we are, we owe to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to put no confidence in the flesh, that is, in ourselves, but to glory in Christ alone and to set our minds upon the things of the Lord Jesus. To set our minds upon things above to set our minds upon the things of the Spirit.